millions of Christians face intense persecution and risk their lives for the sake of the gospel. Vom Oz Radio supports persecuted Christians, giving a voice to the testimony of those who have been denied a voice. Our programs inform and encourage Christians in Australia and around the world to mobilize and to stand with our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. Welcome to Vom Oz Radio, voice for the persecutor. Hi, and welcome back. My name is Todd Nettleton. Last week, we began a conversation with two gospel workers who serve in South Asia. They are back with us this week for the second half of our conversation. For their security, we're only using their first names. Tim and Don are based in Sri Lanka, but they oversee gospel work in Bangladesh, Bhutan, the Maldives, and Nepal. In these countries, several of the world's major religious belief systems compete for the hearts and minds of the people. This presents both challenges and opportunities for Christians there. Sri Lanka, for example, is one of the few places in the world where Muslims have been persecuted right alongside Christian believers uh, because that nationalistic faction of Buddhism has been so tough. Then you can go to Nepal, where there's a Hindu nationalistic type sentiment. The Maldives is more Muslim, and we've had a number of persecution stories come, come out of the Maldives. Bhutan, uh, strongly Buddhist. Bangladesh, strongly Muslim. So it does look a little different in each place, but sadly, we do have pastors who have been killed and martyred for their faith. We have believers who have been beaten. We have church buildings that have been burned. We have uh, Maldives comes to mind for imprisonment, where mm. we, we had believers who have been imprisoned there. So, yeah, each place with its own unique challenge, but there are people who are paying a big price to follow Jesus. Let's talk a little bit, focusing on Sri Lanka, which obviously you guys live there, for most of our listeners, when they think of persecution in Sri Lanka, they think of the church bombings yeah. several years ago, Easter Sunday, different churches, different parts of the country, all coordinated bombing attack. What was it like to be a Christian in Sri Lanka in the days and weeks after that? Because it was such a a different level of persecution, a different level of attack. What was that like? Okay, so Easter Sunday coincided with spring break and a meeting that Don and I had in a neighboring country. So the first thing that we felt was complete hopeless and helplessness because— like we're not even there. Yeah, right. our phones—I'll never forget we were in in a service in a, in a church, and our phones just immediately started going off. And it was, it was both national friends and some members of our team— and it only took a few minutes to figure out that something was really wrong. We saw BBC and Al Jazeera reports because, of, you know, given the time of the day, and it basically had just said that there were attacks that had taken place. They didn't know the source. And, of course, what we know now is they were completely coordinated with radicalized uh, Muslims. Most Sri Lankans, even the Sri Lankan government, felt like it would be determined that these attackers came from outside. That was simply not the case. 
than it was, well, they were simple-minded. That also was not the case. Two of the bombers, one had a doctorate and one had one or two master's degrees. Wow. And had studied abroad. Their families were very wealthy. Yeah. And so it's just so this not whole narrative of out. the economically disadvantaged people rising up is like no, that's that's not what happened yeah, here. No. That was not the case, and they had been they uh, some ISIS group had paid for their expenses to get into India, where they taught them the skill of building these backpack bombs, essentially. And then they were very clear. They said, "We want to kill foreigners and we want to kill Christians." Mm-hmm. So they targeted churches and five-star hotels. And those attacks were no respecter of persons. There's a Dutch billionaire that lost three of his children in one of the five-star restaurants. So it was devastating. We got back, as I remember, probably about four or five days following the attacks because of a security issue that we had had. We brought team members out to a secure location. There was a debrief. Some of them we sent out of the country for a while, and then some of us went back in. One of the more difficult things for me, we were living in an apartment building. We'd become very close to a Maldivian couple on the top floor of our apartment building, and then there was another Muslim couple, as I remember, in that they were just treated so poorly. And an example of that would be the police came through in the weeks that followed. They had safety briefings the local police department had with all of the people in an apartment. So they gathered all of us into the parking garage and gave us all of these briefings about what we needed to be looking out for. And then they said that they would be conducting random searches. Well, the only apartments that were searched were those that that were Muslim. And then they asked for references. And so my friend said, look, I'm here from the Maldives. I don't have, they wanted a name and a phone number of a local person that they were in connection with. I just never forget that night uh, standing there as they're demanding that he turn over some kind of reference. And I finally looked at him and I said, I'll be your friend. I will be your reference. And there was just this shock on his face. And I said, no. Uh, I said, put my name down. And here's, he had already had my number. I said, just put my name down. And so it was really discouraging. And then, of course, what we know, Todd, all these weeks and months later is that this was a local homegrown case of people being radicalized, and it came from the Muslim minority. So it, it very did not follow all of the typical things that you might the, think the of. The patterns that you look for. Yeah. How did the church respond? Did, did people stay home the next Sunday and think oh, it's not worth going? Did did they get more people to come to churches? How? What was the immediate aftermath like for the church as, as right. kind of the the big C church in Sri Lanka? So this is where it gets very difficult. The government felt a responsibility to say we cannot have houses of worship gathering because we cannot ensure we their safety. So safety. we forbid you to meet. Yeah. Oh, interesting. But then at the same time, we had mosques and temples that were still functioning somewhat. So eventually it just led to, I think there was enough outcry that there were no large gatherings allowed everywhere. So we went through about a three-month time period, yeah. I believe, 
where there was no house of worship, be it a mosque or a Hindu kovil or a Buddhist temple or a Christian church, no one met. Mm -hmm. And so it forced us back to this model that our team already espouses anyway, which is we go the direction of house church and we go the direction of small groups. And really the church that has, they would say evolved and might call it progress, progressed toward bigger buildings with bigger meetings, they had to go back to the smaller house church uh, model in order to be able to meet. And it did have an effect. Yeah. I think people felt like there were some churches very angry because they felt like, no, we're, you know, the government is keeping us from meeting using the excuse they can't protect us, but they felt like they really could legitimately protect them. So all kinds of different responses and feelings. Yeah. I know in Sri Lanka, there's been a lot of political turmoil in the last couple of months. How is that affecting Christians and churches and gospel work because the the country has just been in turmoil. Yeah, absolute turmoil. So this started back last year when it was really discovered that the current president, who is the brother of a president we had two presidents ago, so it's a family that has really set up this bit of a you know dynastical grip on the country when it was discovered that he was very corrupt and there was actual evidence. In fact, the president of six months ago was, like I said, the brother of the former president. He named the former president the prime minister. And they had about eight family members that they made ministers of various different, you know, ministry of tourism, ministry of finance. So, this family really had this grip on the country. And, and the bottom line is that the, the general public had had enough. And so they began peaceful protests as far back as about January, I believe. And their demand was that the president resign and go. And so between January and April, the end of April, there were different ways the government was handling that. At times they were forceful using tear gas and arresting, you know, hundreds of people at one time. At other moments, it felt like they were okay with them protesting and they would let them be. But then all of that came to a head uh, the, the first part of May, maybe around May the 5th or May the 7th, I want to say, when the prime minister decided that he would resign but he called a number of his supporters to the prime minister's residence. And when he gave his resignation speech, he coerced them into going and attacking the peaceful protesters. So essentially he gave them a lunch packet and a bottle of whiskey. And at the end of that rally, he worked them into such a frenzy that they marched about a kilometer north from where they were, and they attacked the peaceful protesters. And that day, we had 13 deaths in Sri Lanka. We had a number of uh, members of parliament who were attacked. Their vehicles were set on fire, buses set on fire. I had been out. We had just purchased a new vehicle and trying to get it tagged and all the stuff that comes with that. 
when all of this broke out, we had no indication the day was going to go so badly. And then we ended up in about a two-week lockdown. Yeah, pure don't leave your house or you'll be arrested kind of lockdown. Yeah. And so then as a result, so the prime minister stepped down, the president stepped down weeks later. But in the last four months, we've had an interim president, two presidents, three prime ministers. The parliament has turned over. The the Sri Lankan rupee has crashed. And we have people who are really dealing with serious issues. Most families are trying to work it out to have one meal a day, which is not sufficient. And then we have a number of schools that aren't able to function and operate like they need to. So just tremendous challenges, not yet a real end in sight. There is, you know, help from organizations like the International Monetary Fund and the UN and World Bank are all looking at ways to help. But one of the real challenges is you you have to end the corruption and put some accountability measures in place. And that has not yet been done. Let's talk about, as we wrap up, we always want to equip our listeners to pray. So I want to start out with the church. And you mentioned Sri Lanka and and the chaos that's going on there. So we can pray for uh, structure. We can pray for a conclusion to that, that that's in a good way. But as we think about the church in these places, what are the needs that we can really lift up in prayer this week? Yeah. I, so I think, yeah, for Sri Lanka, a very serious need is that they're just supernatural provision of those food and dry rations that people need. And we have seen many nations be generous. We have some partners who have helped you know, get some dry rations and goods into the country, but pray for those families. It's very difficult um, just that they would have the the physical sustenance of food that they really need to be able to provide for their families. I think this is a time for the church to shine. Uh, I was extremely encouraged. One of our, uh, with the National Church, when we brought food in, they essentially said we're going to give food to those in our congregation that need food, but also we're asking them to name a person in the community who is not necessarily a believer. We're going to give everybody two packets of food, so one for them, and then they're giving an unbeliever a packet uh, and blessing them in the name of Jesus and praying for them. So I think that's powerful. Pray for those those families. And then I'll just mention uh, we have our first worker on the ground, at least for our organization, we have our first worker on the ground in the Maldives uh, in the last 18 years was our last expulsion there. And so we've got somebody actually there with a visa, uh, presently living with, with lost people. So we're really excited about that, but praying for strength for that family and for there to be those, those connections that they need to make. Maldives is one of those countries we talked about earlier, 0.03% Christian. Um, So lots of gospel work to be done. But as you said, people, gospel workers have been expelled from the country. They have been told, nope, you cannot come here. You are not welcome. Um, So I hope that our listeners will pray for gospel work in the Maldives and specifically for that particular family and, and workers there. 
Let's talk about missionaries. You mentioned in in your transition, there were some tough days. There were some some hard spots in the road. As we think about mission workers, maybe people we sponsor, support, our church has sent out, people we know, what are some specific ways to pray for our missionaries and their families as they're serving on the front lines? Well, one of the things is the distance is very hard, and, and life in America goes on. So parents get older, and well, grandparents at this get older, family celebrations happen, and so the disconnect and, and the feeling of the distance really becomes heavy on uh, our missionary workers. So we are family to each other, and we do gather for celebrations, and, and we do feel that for each other, but it can't replace, and it doesn't always feel as comfortable as what the familial relationships are back in America. So anytime there's um, a death in the family, uh, the distance just feels so far and you have to decide, is it is it worth it? Can I even go to the funeral or are they going to Skype me in or Zoom me in? So um, I just think those times are the times that the church in America could step up and be the support system, pray, uh, make phone calls, check on the people that you know and love. Send them a plane ticket. Send them a plane ticket. Absolutely. Uh, You know, one thing is people have miles often accumulated and you could even just use your miles and help somebody. Yeah, Yeah. those are great ideas. And for whatever reason, we're in a season right now where a number at least of of our families— they're they're sending kids off to college. Oh man! And so, um, you know, just remember those families. It's when you get that call at two o'clock in the morning, which is the middle of the afternoon for your child, that their car is broken down or something has happened. And a lot of times, it's just there is a situation where that that MK that missionary kid misses home. Yeah. They they miss. Their parents, and there's got to be a few moments of, you know, talking with them, and that's really, really tough on our parents. Mm. So I would, I'd pray over those emotional situations and the family dynamics, and uh, undoubtedly there are probably listeners who they know an MK and they could reach out to them. But Thanksgiving will be around the corner before you know it, and. Uh, they might offer uh, an extra seat at their table or, or any time, really. Yeah. But I know those holidays especially, uh, for a lot of our people, are difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Part of what you do is is recruit and send people into the work. Yeah. We have, we have some that think maybe they're called. They're kind of wrestling with that. And we have some that are going to be called, but they haven't been yet. Talk to those people who are in that maybe wrestling with the call or maybe even in the, okay, I, I'm called, now what do I do? Talk a little bit to them about what the next steps are. Yeah. Well, again, I would I would just pray, obviously, but beyond that, remember, and I mentioned it earlier, that God is more concerned about our obedience than he is our comfort. That does not mean that we're expecting you to come to the field and suffer, Right. But it does mean that if God has called you to something, there's a reason he's placed Bhutan in your heart or the Maldives in your heart. Uh, Seek the Lord and determine, hey, God, what is it that you're calling me to do? And then I'm not certain, but I can give our website as well has opportunities listed. So that would be Southern Asia Access, southernasiaaccess.com. 
And you can go. There's actually a little tab there that says go. Mm -hmm. It would list all of the opportunities that are available in our area. Do not think that, you know, well, I don't have these skills or I'm not able. We take all kinds of people. We have an internship, actually, that functions uh, May, June every year that gives people a taste of the field. We have vision trips where people can come briefly just to kind of determine, hey, what's going on in this place? How might God be using me? We have people who are operating businesses in order to gain visas to be in a country. We call those BAM, uh, businesses missions. And so I'm just thinking, man, we have architects, we have coffee baristas, we have all kinds of people who with from all kinds of backgrounds, and God can use that and allow you to have a path into, into lost people's lives. And I would just encourage you to just keep those possibilities open. And we started out talking about 210 million people in South Asia who have never heard the name of Jesus. I think that should be heartbreaking to us. It, it breaks my heart. And so if, if you're one of those folks God is working on, Boy, we bless you, and we pray that he will guide you into that spot. Tim and Don, thank you for sharing your heart. Thank you for the work that you do, uh, and thanks for being our guest this week. Thank you. Christians in hostile nations may live far from us. As believers, we know that we are one with them and part of the body of Christ. As such, we can't ignore their suffering. If the Holy Spirit is impressing you to know more and support the work of Voice of the Martyrs, please visit our website at vom.com.au. All donations of $2 and more are tax deductible in Australia. This has been a production of Vom Oz Radio, Voice for the Persecuted.